We've been in the book of Joshua, and it's step by step, and we're in Joshua chapter 5 today. Like any uh, fighter knows, you need to take advantage of the moments when your opponent is down. When they're most vulnerable, this is when you attack. Now, my kids and my grandkids seemed to understand this by about the time they were two, okay? They knew when and where and how to attack Papa. And when I'm on the floor, when I'm reading a book, when I'm not looking, when I'm on the phone, when I'm holding one kid and the rest of me is exposed, They learn quickly how to leverage their tiny power to gain maximum benefit and are ready to pounce. I know many of you understand that, right, Don? Now, I've probably become a little bit more of a willing opponent to my grandkids than I was to my kids. But there is nothing they like more than to do a surprise attack and hear Papa scream and howl like a baby, okay? This seems to be one of the themes in our family. Well, I want to suggest that likewise, the stage is set for Israel to attack these foreign cities. And Jericho is up first. And it's now or never. And word has gotten to the enemy camp, that is to the Canaanites, to those in Jericho, about the Israelite army and how the Israelites were led by the Lord. And so there was very great fear in the camp. And twice in our text, we're reminded that the ones afraid were not the Israelites, though that was true in previous generations. But the ones who are afraid, as we are going through the book of Joshua and the beginning of this chapter, we read that they're fearful of Israel. And in the passage that Sophie had just read, now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings, these are all the enemies, okay, along the coast had heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts had melted in fear and they no longer had courage to face the Israelites. You see, they've got the Israelites at this time have the upper hand. The perfect time then to launch a campaign to take this city, the city of Jericho. The enemy is afraid of Israel's God. Both common sense and good military tactics say it's time to capitalize on the reputation and attack immediately while everyone feels weak and afraid. I want to suggest to you that this is clearly man's thinking. Watch what happens in our text. While it's logical, while it's pragmatic, 
while it works in sports and it works in business and it works with my grandkids surely this is the way God works too right doesn't he well hardly notice verse 2 at that time the Lord said to Joshua make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again you see instead of confidence and momentum, God commands Israel to pause and perform religious ceremonies. But not just any religious ceremony. First, go get a knife. Oh, you don't have any? Then make some knives. Well, that ought to be easy. Make it out of flint, out of stone. Now find all the men, the ones who are of military age, all those who are to go into battle, and circumcise them. Now do I need to explain this in any more detail? The cutting away of the foreskin of the penis, in case you are not familiar, Really, God? What could prepare one less for battle than a good circumcision? I mean, it is one thing to be circumcised on the eighth day as a baby. Typical Israelite protocol. You don't remember it, and you got plenty of recovery time. But can you imagine this scene as an adult? Or would you just rather not? Without good lodging, in a new land, without good instruments, without anesthetics, just before war, everyone goes down at once. Could I go ahead and say, this is foolish. It's nuts. But it's in our text. It's God's way. It seems to me that they are asked to choose their devotion to God over common sense. They're asked to choose their identity as a people of God. This is what circumcision signified. An identity that they belong to Yahweh God and to choose their identity over their own autonomy, over their own independence, over their own thinking that they could figure things out in their way. They are asked to choose God's ways over their practical instincts. You see, God is the commander of this army. Summarized it this way, choose their devotion over God, over, to God over common sense, choose their identity as the people of God, and choose God's ways over their practical instincts. 
Now, what's going on here? There seemed to be several points that we could draw out. I mean, first of all, why had this generation not been circumcised previously? And then why did they take, if you read through the text in a little more detail and read down further, they took the Passover together? Clearly, God was resetting the Israelites in their priorities, in their allegiances, in their expectations, and He is doing that in their new home since they are now crossed over the Jordan with a new identity. But I want to make one more point clear this morning, and let's see if we can find some ways to apply it then that will reach into your life and, uh, and while it, it does, it might be both disruptive and inconvenient and, uh, and even out of favor as much as circumcision at the time of war. Here it is. Your next steps of faith may require you to choose the foolishness of devotion to God over your common sense. You say, well, I don't, I mean, I rely on my common sense a lot, Jeff, and we're supposed to have, a, have common sense, right? Well, you tell me what the Bible says then. And I understand there's a good kind of common sense, but I want you to see the point here. And it, truthfully, isn't this the story of Scripture, as Hannah already tried to point out to us this morning, that fools for God are all over the Bible. Abraham and Sarah having a child in their old age. That's nuts. Abraham asked to offer his own sa- sacrifice, his own son to God. Common sense? Sounds like religious fanaticism to me. Noah, build that gigantic boat on dry land. I'm just getting started if we look at Scripture. Gideon, send home most of your army. Just leave a couple hundred guys to fight the God's battle. Pare it down. Hannah mentioned David the little brother who's tending the sheep. How about Jonah, the one, the man with a super rebellious and stubborn heart against an enemy that he knows so clearly, one, the foreign, ruthless nation. He just despises them. And God says, go and convert them. Well, as New Testament followers of Jesus, is our calling any different? Imagine Mary anointing Jesus' feet with perfume in John chapter 12. Did that make any common sense? A year's worth of wages? <coughs> Excuse me. Very few people in their day could save a year's worth of wages in their entire lifetime. And it vanishes before their very eyes as Jesus' feet are anointed. 
The Apostle Paul put this language very clearly when he finds himself a fool in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of other church leaders, and even the church, even the church he started as he preaches the foolishness of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 18 through 23. Then he later says to the believers in, in Corinth who just didn't get him, he says this, we are fools for Christ. But you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. The word translated here as fools is related to the English word moron. They looked down upon him as the founder of the church because his life was so full of loss and defeat and sacrifice and hardship. Here's the point, if we follow the line of Scripture, our foolishness is an extension of God's strange wisdom. And expect God's ways to be impractical, expect God's ways to be controversial at best, and if it makes good common sense, then be careful. Of course, we don't want to be fools for the wrong reasons. As... I believe believers so often are, and you can pick up almost any, just read headlines and see this across the country. You see, there is a difference between being a fool for Christ and just being a fool. And the Bible doesn't speak highly of fools. There are many believers, maybe who wear that label, but for the wrong reasons. And so I, I, I understand that. But here's an observation. You're going to be somebody's fool. Either a fool for the world, and that seems like a path of trouble, or a fool for Christ. So I want to ask you where you are in the story. Can you identify, in fact, the last time you were a fool for God. I want to read another section in that passage in Joshua 5, beginning with verse 13, if you'll hang with me for just another moment or two. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. Or the Hebrew just says no. But as the commander of the Lord, I have now come. Now watch this. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and ask, what message does my Lord 
have for his servant. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this is a stunning scene because this messenger, this commander, appears presumably, and I would suggest provocatively, provocatively, to be God himself. To be Jesus Christ appearing in our Old Testament scripture. Joshua finds himself face to face with this mighty warrior and Joshua asks, are you for us? or for our enemies. And then he realizes that he'd asked the wrong question. Rather than ask which side the warrior was on, the right question is, are we on the Lord's side? Who's fool? Am I going to be? You see, fools for God. It's foolish to think that a man 2,000 years ago walked the earth, died on a garbage heap outside of a city, could somehow pay your sins through his death on a humiliating cross. We get so used to the story, we think it makes sense. Well, on some levels it does, and on other levels, it's God's foolishness. It's foolish to think that, some, that you can forgive someone who hurts you. That you don't have to hold a grudge or take revenge. I mean, how easy it is to think with good common sense, if I don't react, take action, leave this person, take revenge, then who will? And yet that's not the way of a fool for Christ. It's foolish to think that you could become real friends with your enemies. But it seems foolish to think that you could even become friends with people who don't think like you, who you don't like very much, and maybe really just don't like you all that much either, who don't look like you or act like you or vote like you. It's foolish to think that every human being is made in the image of God and there is no superiority or inferiority in God's eyes and in God's kingdom. It's foolish to think that true strength is found in weakness in vulnerability. 
It's foolish to think that real freedom is rooted in self-discipline and restraint. It's foolish to think that death is simply a speed bump. As we celebrated yesterday with Marty's memorial, that death is a speed bump to the next life. It's foolish to think that you are fully known and still dearly loved and completely cared for by a universal being. It's foolish to think that God will finally and actually and completely usher in His kingdom vision of peace and love and joy where lion and lamb lie down together. But I'm asking this morning, would you look at your next steps of faith? Would you pray about this idea this morning? And here's my conviction, that your next steps of faith may require you to choose the foolishness of devotion to God over your common sense.